is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about everything here on this show, from business to history, from sports to the arts, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen. We'll put it together, produce it, and you'll be hearing your stories, your own stories on the air. They're some of our favorites. The American people can write and talk, and my goodness, what stories you've already given us. What's coming up next is an intersection of two of our favorite subjects, innovation and music. And you're about to hear the story of the multi-track recording. It spawned an epic rivalry between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Change music as we know it. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair In the 60s, multi-track recording began to redefine what music could be and turn the studio into a sonic laboratory. I'm picking up Here's Ringo Starr. It was like a strange place, full of like crazy scientists, electricians, madmen. Here's music producer Don Was. Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. 90 hours working on one song. Everyone thought that was insanity. Here's music historian Chuck Granada and the founder of the band Boston, Tom Scholes. In 1976, a band named Boston had a hit single called More Than a Feeling. What no one knew was that Boston really wasn't a band at all. Boston was the result of me tinkering in a basement with my multi-track recording studio. It was a really personal endeavor. I work in my own space, my own time, put a rhythm guitar part on, and then another one, and then a bass track, keyboards. Then I uh, called Brad Delp to see if he wanted to sing the vocals, which thankfully he did. So I basically threw a band together to be able to play the songs live. Not only didn't the record company, uh, not only were they not aware that I was making a record in my basement, but they never became aware that the record that they were selling millions of copies of was made in a basement. Multitracking allowed you to put music together and change it. And the reason it was cool is because this gave you a, basically a whole new medium. At one point, Someone explained to me, older than I was, that this whole process of recording on uh, multi-track recorders was invented by this guy, Les Paul. And I said, well, what a coincidence. There's a guitar that, that's named a Les Paul. And he says, yeah, there's a good reason for that. Les Paul not only designed some guitars that made new and incredible sounds, but had this vision for recording studios. He invented multi-track recording. That, that, that changed everything. Here's the 
Here's Eric Clapton. The records I heard by Les Paul and Mary Ford in the 50s, I was even aware then that without any knowledge of, um, of recording techniques that they were doing something revolutionary. Uh, we turn the tape machines on. They're just a standard, regular uh, Ampex tape machine. Mm -hmm. As I recall, there are uh, about a dozen or 20 voices come in there. Now, where, who's the voices? That's Mary. You mean they're all Mary's voices? Mm -hmm. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Now yeah. I'll add a tenor part to that. Right. Wait a minute. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere, Somewhere there's, there's heaven, how high the moon. Well, how long can this go on without getting awful confused in your head? <laughs> it's pretty confused. cued by your husband. <laughs> Well, uh, would you like to hear the third part? Yes. Somewhere there's music, Somewhere there's heaven, ha ha moon. Here's Jeff Beck. Les Paul, I mean, he made sounds no one had ever heard before. I remember my mum saying, that you shouldn't listen to this music, it's fake. She said, it's one guy tricking us. So I said, that's it, that's, me. that's the music for me. <laughs> because it was enabled me to be rebellious, you know, as well. And I enjoyed the sound. I don't think you can beat that. I mean, the way that those records sound is it's still exciting. Before magnetic tape, an artist would come into the studio and they would be recorded live. What they would do is literally etch the grooves into the disc as the session was being recorded. You had to start from the beginning and go to the end. If you made any mistakes, too bad, or you had to start over. Magnetic tape, it just changed music completely. It gave you the possibility to record in fidelity that was better than anyone had ever even come close to, so you could make a more accurate document. At the same time, it lets you manipulate sound so it didn't sound lifelike at all because now you could edit, you could overdub, you could cut and splice. Once the technology came out, it very quickly became the standard format. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable story, this tale of innovation and music and competition. Competition is a vital part of this story. The story of the multi-track recording continues here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the multi-track music revolution. And by the way, I'm a huge music fan, and there's some stuff. Well, I'm just writing down notes to myself, and I'm going to be going back to listen to some of my favorite records now and listen a whole lot differently. Let's return to this story and to Greg Hengler. Okay, wouldn't it be nice, take five. Recalling his 1960s game of one-upmanship with the Beach Boys' so-called rivals, the Beatles, Brian Wilson said, Rubber Soul inspired pet sounds, which inspired Sgt. Pepper's. Here's music producer Don Was and music historian Chuck Granato. I think the kind of friendly competition between the Beatles and the Beach Boys really advanced the cause of popular music. Brian Wilson heard Rubber Soul and understood that there was a whole other place where you could take rock and roll. That that, that was an elevated musical consciousness at play. Brian was listening to what the Beatles were doing in the studio and he was completely knocked out. Hearing that made him realize that he had to up the ante on his next album, which was Pet Sounds. No, it's gonna make it that much better when we can say goodnight and stay told me that he and Carl used to pray before each session, that they would make a record that would be warmer and more inspirational than Rubber Soul. None of those big pickups, blah, 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 just, uh, just like, uh, do-do-do-do. Brian like pre-imagined everything that he did. He heard all of the vocal parts, all of the instrumental parts, even before anyone set foot in the studio. Brian was the mastermind. I'd like to start it out now, this time, with the uh, organ and the Fender bass. And then uh, the bongos will come in the second half like everything else. All right, here we go. Ironically, the only song from the Pet Sound Sessions that reached number one was recorded after the album was released. And it was the result of an unprecedented number of hours in the studio. Here's Glenn Campbell. Time was nothing to Brian Wilson. I remember we all got to sit there for about three and a half hours when he was running his finger up that thing going. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. When he made good vibrations, Brian reportedly spent 90 hours recording it. Everyone thought that was insanity, you know, like he's gone mad. He spent 90 hours working on one song. You know, I mean, today that's nothing. Here's Beach Boys drummer Hal Blaine and bassist Carol Kay. The session that we did on Good Vibrations was not one session. It was many, many, many sessions. Take after take after take. My fingers were almost bleeding, you know. It's like, come on, Brian, fade us out, fade us out. I don't know where, but you sent me there. (laughs) 
different vocal parts created that wonderful celestial resonance overdub over overdub over overdub until on God Only Knows he ended up with seven tracks of vocal overdubs and that's how come you hear this heavenly choir here's Paul McCartney we loved the Beach Boys, and it, it was a bit of a competition across the pond. And when they did Pet Sounds, I played it to everyone. I said, oh, listen, listen to what they're doing here, you know. So we did Sergeant Pepper. Here's Ringo Starr. What happened to us was that while we were touring, we were regressing as musicians because the noise of the audience was louder than the band. I'm watching the feet, I'm watching their asses, I'm watching the bobbing heads. Woo! Oh, it's that part. To stay in some sort of time. Beatles producer George Martin. The Beatles achieved a quantum leap when they stopped touring. That gave us an opportunity which we hadn't had before. We no longer were under pressure to complete a song within a day or two days. We could spend as much time as we like on it. The boundaries were being moved so far forward from the early mono days. Now we were asking for things like a symphony orchestra for a day in the life. You know, lunatics are taking over the asylum. Many of John's songs, A Day in the Life began quite simply, based on the odd newspaper cutting. Paul had written a scrap of a song. Woke up, fell out of bed, you know the one. But when we laid down the track, Paul came up with the idea of a giant crescendo, a kind of immense musical orgasm.
Don't listen to the man next to you, I said to the orchestra. Make your own way up this sliding passage. And if you're playing the same note as your companion, you're playing the wrong one. Well, the orchestra hooted with laughter. All their lives they'd tried to play as one man, and it only took a few minutes for the Beatles to change all that. We were taking so long making Sgt. Pepper. I remember in one of the musical papers, they said, oh, the Beatles have dried up. And we were like, <coughs> no, we haven't. Here's Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. We were on the road driving to a gig in an old Zephyr 4 when Sergeant Pepper was played for the first time on the radio. And I remember we pulled off into a lay-by and sat there and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. And I remember we just looked at each other and went, hey, that's just... Suddenly, here was an album that was like a theatrical construction, but it was also rooted in songs that were about all our hopes and fears. And so, in, in that sense, that album opened Pandora's box for everybody. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And my goodness, what we learned here, as always, in Our American Stories is that intersection of competition, free markets, and intellectual property rights. And my goodness, without all three of those things, we are learning here, we wouldn't have the rich cultural and artistic tradition we have here in this great country. The story of the multi-track recording revolution, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and it's commencement season and we love playing some of the great and not so great commencement speeches over the years that we've accumulated just for you and for your listening and today we have author and writer Neil Gaiman's speech that he gave to the University of Arts in Philadelphia class of 2012 I never really expected to find myself giving advice to people graduating from an establishment of higher education. I never graduated from any such establishment. I never even started at one. I escaped from school as soon as I could when the prospect of four more years of enforced learning before I could become the writer I wanted to be seemed stifling. I got out into the world, I wrote, and I became a better writer the more I wrote, and I wrote some more, and nobody ever seemed to mind that I was making it all up as I went along. They just read what I wrote, and they paid me for it, or they didn't. <laughs> and often they commissioned me to write something else for them. 
which has left me with a healthy respect and fondness for higher education that those of my friends and family who attended universities were cured of long ago. Looking back, I've had a remarkable ride. I'm not sure I can call it a career, because a career implies that I had some kind of career plan, and I never did. The nearest thing I had was a list I made when I was about 15 of everything I wanted to do. I wanted to write an adult novel, a children's book, a comic, a movie, record an audio book, write an episode of Doctor Who, and so on. I didn't have a career, I just did the next thing on the list. So I thought I'd tell you everything I wish I'd known starting out, and a few things that looking back on it, I suppose I did know, and that I'd also give you the best piece of advice I'd ever got, which I completely failed to follow. <laughs> First of all, when you start out on a career in the arts, you have no idea what you're doing. This is great. People who know what they're doing know the rules, and they know what is possible and what is impossible. You do not, and you should not. The rules on what is possible and impossible in the arts were made by people who had not tested the bounds of the possible by going beyond them. And you can. If you don't know it's impossible, it's easier to do. And because nobody's done it before, they haven't made up rules to stop anyone doing that particular thing again. <laughs> Secondly, if you have an idea of what you want to make, what you were put here to do, then just go and do that. And that's much harder than it sounds, and sometimes in the end so much easier than you might imagine. Because normally there are things you have to do before you can get to the place you want to be. I wanted to write comics and novels and stories and films. So I became a journalist, because journalists are allowed to ask questions and to simply go and find out how the world works. And besides, to do those things I needed to write, and to write well. And I was being paid to learn how to write economically, crisply, sometimes under adverse conditions and on deadline. Sometimes the way to do what you hope to do will be clear-cut, and sometimes it'll be almost impossible to decide whether or not you're doing the correct thing because you'll have to balance your goals and hopes with feeding yourself, paying debts, finding work, settling for what you can get. Something that worked for me was imagining that where I wanted to be which was an author, primarily of fiction, making good books, making good comics, making good drama, and supporting myself through my words. Imagining that was a mountain, a distant mountain, my goal. And I knew that as long as I kept walking towards the mountain, I'd be all right. And when I truly was not sure what to do, I could stop and think about whether it was taking me towards or away from the mountain. I said no to editorial jobs on magazines, proper jobs that would have paid proper money, because I knew that, attractive though they were, for me, they would have been walking away from the mountain. And if those job offers had come earlier, I might have taken them, because they still would have been closer to the mountain than I was at that time. I learned to write by writing. I tended to do anything as long as it felt like an adventure and to stop when it felt like work, which meant that life 
did not feel like work. Thirdly, when you start out, you have to deal with the problems of failure. You need to be thick-skinned to learn that not every project will survive. A freelance life, a life in the arts, is sometimes like putting messages in bottles on a desert island and hoping that someone will find one of your bottles and open it and read it and put something in a bottle that will wash its way back to you. Appreciation or a commission or money or love. And you have to accept that you may put out hundreds of things for every bottle that winds up coming back. The problems of failure are problems of discouragement, of hopelessness, of hunger. You want everything to happen and you want it now and things go wrong. My first book, a piece of journalism I'd done only for the money and which had already bought me an electric typewriter from the advance, should have been a bestseller. It should have paid me a lot of money if the publisher hadn't gone into involuntary liquidation between the first print run selling out and the second print run never happening and before any royalties could be paid. It would have done. And I shrugged and I still had my electric typewriter and enough money to pay the rent for a couple of months and I decided that I'd do my best in future not to write books just for the money. If you didn't get the money, then you didn't have anything. And if I did work I was proud of, and I didn't get the money, at least I'd have the work. Every now and then, I forget that rule. And whenever I do, the universe kicks me hard and reminds me. I don't know that it's an issue for anybody but me, but it's true that nothing I did where the only reason for doing it was the money was ever worth it, except as bitter experience. Usually I didn't wind up getting the money either. <laughs> the things I did because I was excited and wanted to see them exist in reality have never let me down and I've never regretted the time I spent on any of them. The problems of failure are hard. The problems of success can be harder because nobody warns you about them. The first problem of any kind of even limited success is the unshakable conviction that you're getting away with something and that any moment now they will discover you. <laughs> it's imposter syndrome, something my wife Amanda christened the fraud police. In my case, I was convinced there would be a knock on the door and a man with a clipboard. I don't know why he had a clipboard, but in my head, he always had a clipboard would be there to tell me it was all over and they'd caught up with me and now I would have to go and get a real job. One that didn't consist of making things up and writing them down and reading books I wanted to read and then I would go away quietly and get the kind of job where I would have to get up early in the morning and wear a tie and not make things up anymore. And what a voice we're hearing. It's Neil Gaiman's commencement speech. He gave it to the University of Arts in Philadelphia back in 2012. And oddly enough, while he had never graduated from college, as he put it, he escaped from school, and he escaped in forced learning, as he put it. And those are terrific words, because that's how so many people in school feel. Enforced learning is what they're up to, and they fight it or run from it at every turn. That's why so many people are bored in school. Nobody seemed to mind that I made it up on my own he told the audience. And there's so much more wisdom, so much more wit as we continue. Neil Gaiman's commencement speech, 
Again, at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, it continues after these commercial messages. And we return to Our American Stories. We've been listening to writer Neil Gaiman's commencement speech that he gave at the University of Arts in Philadelphia in 2012. He left off first talking about the problems of failure, but how no one warns you about the problems of success. The problems of success, they're real. And with luck, you'll experience them. The point where you stop saying yes to everything and you have to learn to say no. I watched my peers and my friends and the ones who were older than me and I'd watch how miserable some of them were. I'd listen to them telling me they couldn't envisage a world where they did what they've always wanted to do anymore because now they had to earn a certain amount every month just to keep where they were. They couldn't go and do the things that mattered and that they'd really wanted to do and that seemed as big a tragedy as any problem of failure. Fourthly, I hope you'll make mistakes. If you make mistakes, it means you're out there doing something. And the mistakes in themselves can be very useful. I once misspelled Caroline in a letter, transposing the A's and the O, and I thought, Caroline looks almost like a real name. (laughs) Remember, whatever discipline you're in, whether you're a musician or a photographer, a fine artist or a cartoonist, a writer, a dancer, a singer, a designer, whatever you do, you have one thing that's unique. You have the ability to make art. And for me, and for so many of the people I've known, that's been a lifesaver, the ultimate lifesaver. It gets you through good times and it gets you through the other ones. Sometimes life is hard. Things go wrong in life and in love, and in business, and in friendship, and in health, and in all the other ways that life can go wrong. And when things get tough, this is what you should do. Make good art. I'm serious. Husband runs off with a politician, make good art. Leg crushed and then eaten by a mutated boa constrictor, Make good art. IRS on your trail, make good art. Cat, cat exploded, make good art. Someone on the internet thinks what you're doing is stupid or evil or it's all been done before, make good art. Probably things will work out somehow and eventually time will take the sting away and that doesn't even matter. Do what only you can do best. Make good art. Art. Make it on the bad days, and make it on the good days too. And fifthly, while you're at it, make your art. Do the stuff that only you can do. The urge starting out is to copy, and that's not a bad thing. Most of us only find our own voices after we've sounded like a lot of other people. But the one thing that you have 
that nobody else has is you, your voice, your mind, your story, your vision. So write and draw and build and play and dance and live as only you can. The moment that you feel that just possibly you're walking down the street naked, exposing too much of your heart and your mind and what exists on the inside, showing too much of yourself, that's the moment you may be starting to get it right. The things I've done that worked the best were the things I was the least certain about. The stories where I was sure they'd either work or more likely be the kind of embarrassing failures that people would gather together and discuss until the end of time. <laughs> they always had that in common. Looking back at them, people explain why they were inevitable successes and when I was doing them, I had no idea. I still don't. And where would be the fun in making something you knew was going to work? And sometimes the things I did really didn't work. There are stories of mine that have never been reprinted. Some of them never even left the house. But I learned as much from them as I did from the things that worked. Okay, sixthly, I'm going to pass on some secret freelancer knowledge. Secret knowledge is always good. And it's useful for anyone who ever plans to create art for other people to enter a freelance world of any kind. I learned it in comics, but it applies to other fields too, and it's this. People get hired because somehow they get hired. <laughs> in my case, I did something which these days would be easy to check and would get me into a lot of trouble. And when I started out in those pre-internet days, it seemed like a sensible career strategy. When I was asked by editors who I'd written for, I lied. <laughs> I listed a handful of magazines that sounded likely, and I sounded confident, and I got jobs. I then made it a point of honor to have written something for each of the magazines I'd listed to get that first job so that I hadn't actually lied, I'd just been chronologically challenged. <laughs> but you get work however you get work. But people keep working in a freelance world, and more and more of today's world is freelance, because their work is good, and because they're easy to get along with, and because they deliver the work on time. And you don't even need all three. <laughs> Two out of three, is fine. <laughs> People will tolerate how unpleasant you are if your work is good and you deliver it on time. <laughs> People will forgive the lateness of your work if it's good and they like you. And you don't have to be as good as everyone else if you're on time and it's always a pleasure to hear from you. <laughs> So when I agreed to give this address, I thought, what is the best piece of advice I was ever given? And I realized that it was actually a piece of advice that I had failed to follow. And it came from Stephen King. It was 20 years ago at the height of the success, the initial success of Sandman, the comic I was writing. I was, oh, thank you. I was writing a comic people loved, and they were taking it seriously. And Stephen King 
liked Sam Mann, and my novel with Terry Pratchett, Good Omens, and he, he saw the madness that was going on, the long signing lines, all of that stuff, and, and his advice to me was this. He said, this is really great. You should, you should enjoy it. And I didn't. Best advice I ever got that I ignored. Instead, I worried about it. I worried about the next deadline, the next idea, the next story. There wasn't a moment for the next 14 or 15 years that I wasn't writing something in my head or wondering about it. And I didn't stop and look, and look around and go, this is really fun. I wish I'd enjoyed it more. It's been an amazing ride, but there were parts of the ride I missed because I was too worried about things going wrong, about what came next to enjoy the bit that I was on. That was the hardest lesson for me, I think, to let go and enjoy the ride. Because the ride takes you to some remarkable and unexpected places. And here on this platform, today for me, is one of those places. And I am enjoying myself immensely. I'd actually put that in brackets just in case I wasn't, I wouldn't say. <laughs> to all today's graduates, I wish you luck. Luck is useful. Often you will discover that the harder you work and the more wisely that you work, the luckier you will get. But there is luck, and it helps. We're in a transitional world right now. If you're in any kind of artistic field, because the nature of distribution is changing, the models by which creators got their work out into the world and got to keep a roof over their heads and buy sandwiches while they did that, they're all changing. I've talked to people at the top of the food chain, in publishing, in book selling, in music, in all those areas, and no one knows what the landscape will look like two years from now, let alone a decade away. The old rules are crumbling, and nobody knows what the new rules are. So make up your own rules. Someone asked me recently how to do something she thought was going to be difficult. In this case, recording an audiobook. And I suggested she pretend that she was someone who could do it. <laughs> Not pretend to do it, but pretend she was someone who could. She put up a notice to this effect on the studio wall, and she said it helped. So be wise, because the world needs more wisdom. And if you cannot be wise, pretend to be someone who is wise, and then just behave like they would. <laughs> and now go and make interesting mistakes, make amazing mistakes, make Glorious and fantastic mistakes. Break rules. Leave the world more interesting for your being here. Make good art. And that was Neil Gaiman, his commencement speech at the University of Arts in Philadelphia in 2012. And I love what he said about mistakes. Go make them. Make interesting, beautiful, glorious mistakes, he urged those young graduates to do. And that's such good advice. He also didn't take that advice from Stephen King, and that was to enjoy himself, and he didn't. He didn't enjoy that success, those moments. He didn't have fun. He worried for 14 or 15 years, but he shared that 
with the graduates. Neil Gaiman's talk, his commencement address, it's commencement season, celebrating more of these talks all month long here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here, including music. And now, Jesse brings us the story of legendary radio DJ, Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack! We just got a report here that hundreds of people are just swarming around the manhole covers all over the city and climbing into them. And a reliable source tells us that they are still trying to find the entrance to the studio where the Wolfman Jack show is taking place. <laughs> oh, gracious me. I think they found us. Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack was born Robert Weston Smith in Brooklyn, New York on January 21st, 1938. As a young teenager, he listened to the radio in his basement where he pretended to be a DJ. As a little kid, I always listened to this radio station. I was one of, the, I was one of those kind of folks you'd call a radio freak, I guess. You know, I had transoceanic radio and a whole bunch of different other... You know, I listened to all the disc jockeys, different people, and copied styles, figured out how they communicated and what, why they made me feel good. And uh, I, I took all the good, positive things out of most of the, the greatest disc jockeys in the world, people like... Moondog, who's Alan Freed, you know. Hello, everybody. Hi, all. This is Alan Freed, the old king of the Moondoggers, and a hearty welcome to all our thousands of friends in northern Ohio, Ontario, Canada, western New York, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Big John R. from WLAC down in Nashville, Tennessee, playing that good rhythm and blues. This is John R. Way down south in Dixie. Hoss Allen. From Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Horseman. Magnificent Montague. The Magnificent Montague, starring Monty Woolley. <laughs> These jocks would turn you around and flip you upside down. Magnificent Montague told me one time, if you ain't sweating, you ain't working. So I always remember that. So every time I'm on the radio, I'm sweating, baby. I'm working hard. But radio isn't exactly the easiest profession to break into. And like many of us who work in the business, Smith started out working as an intern. I uh, used to cut school and go hang out at the local black radio station. And I learned how to run the board and everything. And I was spitty then, you know, a gopher for the jocks. You know, I go down and they even let me, they even let me pick liquor up for them in the liquor store. I was only about 13 or 14 years old. And I ran all the errands for them. And they taught me what, what I had to know. And I hung around there and cut school all the time. And uh, my, my parents thought I was going to wind up to be a little, you know. I didn't know what the hell to do with me. Later, Smith attended the National Academy of Broadcasting in Washington, D.C. While going to classes at night, by day he supported himself as a door-to-door salesman. And although Smith was a high school dropout, he graduated broadcasting school at the top of his class. In 1961, Smith moved to Louisiana and started working at country music station KCIJ. I wanted everybody to love me. Although his show was successful and had many listeners, he was looking for something different. In 1963, it was in Shreveport that Bob Smith created the Wolfman Jack character. Well, you know that everything in entertainment is acting. 
Even singing is acting. Playing an instrument is acting. And if you want to be a good actor, you create a character for yourself. And then you act it out. You become that character. Now I have fully become the Wolfman character. It's taken me over. I mean, I can't get away from it anymore. And uh, before I used to be able to hide the, the bushes, you know. The character had always been in me. Because there was the Hound from Buffalo. And there was Moondog. Wolfman. See, it all fits, you know what I mean? It was around this time that Bob Smith had the idea to get his new Wolfman Jack show on the powerful Mexican radio station XERF, a massive 250,000-watt station with a signal that covered the entirety of North America and beyond. Outside of Del Rio, Texas, in a little town of Coahuila, the state of Coahuila, the town of Acuna, Coahuila, Mexico. Now, this is a very powerful radio station on the AM band. Probably the most powerful commercial radio station ever, ever was. In America, anyway. Yeah, like when I go to Disneyland, you know, I never have any trouble in Frontierland. I never have any trouble in Futureland. But for some reason, I always get in trouble when I wind up in Fantasyland. Oh, no! crazy? <laughs> You're listening to the Wolfman Jack Show! Wolfman Jack's personality sent energy through the radio speakers and attracted the attention of millions of people all across North America on a radio station just south of the Mexican border where the FCC has zero authority. It was so powerful, this radio station, that you could take a fluorescent bulb and go outside and hold it up in the air and it would glow. A car would pull up to the radio station and the lights would stay on. They never used it during the daytime. See, during the daytime, that ionosphere came way down here, you know, so it didn't make no sense. Even with all that power, you'd only reach San Antonio, you know what I mean? They waited till the nighttime came, you know. <laughs> then they could scoot that sucker out all over the world. But when they turned it on during the daytime to test out the transmitter, birds would come flying towards it. Boom. They'd go run out and grab it, cook it for supper. <laughs> really, they used to get these damn birds flying by the... T turn on the transmitter for a half hour, They'd have supper made, you know what I mean? A car driving from New York to Los Angeles would never lose the station, beaming out at 250,000 watts. Five times the U.S. limit could be picked up all over North America, and at night, as far away as Europe and the Soviet Union. If it's a new record, I'm going to play it. If it's an oldie, I'm going to play it. If it's a fresh artist nobody ever heard, I'm going to play it. That doesn't exist anymore. Great artists out there performing, people like Bonnie Raitt and Lyle Lovett and all these cats who played a good bluesy rock and roll country touch type thing, which is really the happening music. And nobody can put them together in one format. It's kind of like this guy went, no, this guy's country. We can't put him in a rock format, no. No, she's too country, she's too blue, no, can't put her. You know what I mean? It's unforgivable. These magnificent facilities are pumping puke out. They might as well be doing that over the air because and then people are listening and say, oh, listen to that. Oh, isn't that fine? You know what I mean? When we return, the story of Wolfman Jack continues right here on Our American Stories. Hello, who's this on the Wolfman Telephone? Hi, this is Frankie Valley, and the guy you're listening to is one of my best friends, Wolfman Jack. You got the Wolfman Jack!
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the one, the only, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> oh, telephone, where am I, Mike? Hello, who's this on the Wolfman Telephone? Hi, this is Nick of Fleetwood Mac, reminding all my fans to listen to the Wolfman Jack show. Listen, it's good. Wolfman Jack! Wolfman's mix of rowdy rock, verbal antics, and raw rhythm and blues began to make the news. His national popularity grew as stories began to appear in Time, Newsweek, Life, and City Newspapers, all asking the same questions. Who is Wolfman Jack? Where did he come from? And how did he get his hands on a Mexican radio station that could be heard all over the world at night? Because they would run preachers during the early part of the evening, up to around midnight. And then at midnight, they didn't know what the hell they would do. And they'd run country gospel, black gospel, they'd run all kinds of crazy stuff and after the midnight hour. So I wanted to go down to Del Rio to talk to the people who are running that station, see if I couldn't put this character Wolfman Jack on the air. So I showed up on the scene. And uh, the man who was running the station that time was a guy by the name of Arturo Gonzalez, the heaviest dude in that area. He was an international lawyer, self-made man, became a lawyer through, you know, correspondence courses, man. And he made it on through, from, came over the border mix, and now he owned Del Rio. And he owned Acuna, and he owned that radio station. So I had a meeting with him the next day. So me and my partner decided we'd go out and look at the radio station. Well, I had a brand new uh, Super 88, you know, one of those big Oldsmobile convertibles. I didn't want to take it across the border. I figured I wouldn't have anything left when I got back. So we got a cab driver to take us over there. And then we finally got over there. He took us to Boys Town, which is just... Red Light District. You know, <laughs> all the girls do their thing. So then we found another cab driver. He wanted to go out to see the station. He says, there's no roads to the station. I said, okay, well, take us out to the station. You put some money on him. The guy took us out. All of a sudden, we out there. Black as you can see. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face if you raised it. You know? We're driving through these sand dunes late at night. All of a sudden, out of the distance, See this little red light blinking like this. As we got closer, you could see it was a radio tower. And there was two buildings. One I found out was a building that housed the generator to supply the power to the radio station. The generator was big as a locomotive in a train, you know. I walk in, there's this great big transmitter. Looks from like out of space, you know. Big, beautiful thing. In front of it, there's little coal things sitting. These Mexican dudes, you know, cooking goat meat in front of the transmitter. One guy polishing the damn thing. I go to the back where the studio is, having this meeting. And while they're having the meeting, Reverend Jessup is on the air, preaching, you know, Yes, God, if you send in $25 right now, the Lord's magic number, Reverend Jessup going to send you a personally signed prayer cloth for me. You know, that, that's going on in the background. So I walk in, I meet this cat by the name of Mario Alfaro, who spoke English. None of the other people spoke English. I could communicate with Mexican folks real well. Even though I don't speak it, I, I communicate with them. But this guy spoke English. And I found out what they were doing. They wanted to appoint their own interventor. Because the one that was appointed by Gonzalez, when he was pulling his deal with the preachers, were playing bad head games on the boys who were running the radio station. First of all, they weren't paying them half the time. And then they would come in, if somebody didn't like what was going on, they'd come in and beat the hell out of them, you know? So they wanted to get rid of this guy. 
And here comes the Wolfman on the scene with a pocket full of money. My buddy with me, my Starfire Oldsmobile right across the border. What do you guys need? I got it all here. I started taking out the money and laying it on the table. Immediately they loved me. I laid out about a thousand dollars in hundred dollar bills. And I said, I want you all to have one. And that'll show that you can trust me. Well, they were amazed. So immediately I took control of the radio station. From then on, it was a process of calling the preachers and getting the money coming to me. I sent the boys off to Mexico City to get a new interventor to take over the radio station. In the meantime, I walked into the situation and took over this radio station. Here I was going to present this tape to Arturo Gonzalez to put Wolfman Jack on the air. And here I was on the air. The next night, of course, I went on the air as Wolfman Jack. And that's how Wolfman Jack was born. By 1966, Robert Smith was now living as Wolfman Jack 24-7, had been broadcasting on XERF for nearly five years. Major music artists such as Todd Rundegren, Leon Russell, Freddie King, and the Guess Who all produced chart-topping hits written about the Wolfman. By the early 70s, he was living in Beverly Hills, being heard all over the world and making a lot of money. Maybe too much money. Because in 1970, without warning, the Mexican government took possession of XERF. And suddenly, Wolfman Jack was off the air. Clap for the Wolfman. He gon' reach your record high. Clap for the Wolfman. You gon' dig until the day you die. But the Wolfman got to work capitalized on his fame by editing down his old show tapes and selling them to radio stations everywhere, becoming one of the very first syndicated rock and roll programs in America. And now, here's Wolfman Jack. You know, I'm a real audio video freak, and I've tried playing with a lot of video games in my time, even before they were invented, as I was a real fan. And comparing them all, well, I come to one conclusion. None are as exciting as Harry Carey video games. They have the best picture, the best color, and above all, they're more violent than any other. Choose from the catalog of 456 different games, including Sidewalk Suicide, Machines That Mangle People, and my favorite, Mass Destruction of Everything on the Face of the Earth. Hey, when it comes to video games, don't be fooled. Commit to Harry Carey! <laughs> At his peak, Wolfman Jack was heard on more than 2,000 radio stations in 53 countries. In 1972, he was hired to be the announcer, interviewer, and co-host of NBC TV's late-night music series, The Midnight Special. In 1973, he appeared on the film American Graffiti as himself, directed by George Lucas. I said, somebody wants to see you over Universal, they want you to do a movie. I said, okay. So I ran over there, and who's sitting behind the desk? George Lucas. I said, what's the matter, man? You need money, right, to do this film? You want me to contribute to the film? He said, no, Wolfman, we want you to be in the movie. I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And then I found out, he gave me the script, I read the movie. I knew it was a hit because it was Americana. It was what we do in the evening time. You listen to a great disc jockey, play great rock and roll records, you meet guys, you meet ladies, and you flash your car around, and you do the best thing, that's the most fun in the world. It's a shame a lot of kids can't do that nowadays. His broadcasts tie the film together, and the character played by Richard Dreyfus catches a glimpse of the mysterious Wolfman in this pivotal scene. Are you the Wolfman? 
No, man, I'm not the wolf man. Who is this on the wolf man telephone? Diane. How you doing, Diane? That's the wolf man. Do you love me? He's on tape. <laughs> the man is on tape. Well, uh, where, where is he now? I mean, uh, where does he work? The wolf man is everywhere. Well, I gotta give him this note. The wolf man comes in here occasionally, bringing tapes, you know, to check up on me and whatnot. Yeah. And the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. And there's a great big beautiful world out there. And here I sit, sucking on popsicles. Wanting to leave? I'm not a young man anymore. And the wolf man gave me my start in the business, and I like it. I tell you what, if I can possibly do it tonight, I'll try to relay this dedication in and get it on the air for you later on. That would be terrific. Really. Thanks. Yes, man. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Really, I appreciate it. On July 1st, 1995, Wolfman Jack died of a heart attack at his home in Belvedere, North Carolina. Rock on, baby! We gonna do it right here! Rock and roll yourself to death! Oh, mercy! Give me some more! That day, he finished broadcasting what would be his last Wolfman Jack radio show from the Hard Rock Cafe in Washington, D.C. He was very anxious to get home, as he'd been on the road for several days on a promotional book tour for his autobiography. After a flight from D.C. and a limousine ride from the airport, Wolfman was happy to be home. He walked up the driveway, went inside his house, hugged his wife, and dropped dead. This is Our American Stories. Show, baby. I hope all you people taking down all your pictures, cause we gonna be playing some of that bounce off the wall music, baby. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another On Leadership story, this time with the first Marine to ever be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace. The third of four kids of an Italian immigrant Brooklyn, New York family, Pace graduated from the Naval Academy in 1967 and soon found himself leading a platoon in the middle of the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. After a distinguished career in and out of combat, Pace retired in 2007 as a four-star general. He then did what so many great old Marines do. They try to help the young ones coming up. We're going to listen in on General Pace's talk with third-class midshipmen at the Naval Academy. These are 19-year-olds 
But Annapolis, along with other service academies and some standout civilian universities like Hillsdale, takes the moral formation of its students very seriously. And so naturally, Pace began his talk with the young midshipmen with a story from back when he was in their shoes. But when I was a third-class mid, don't know why, but both of my roommates decided they were going to start smoking pipes. I watched this for about a week, and I wanted to be part of the family, so to speak. So I went down to the mid-store, bought a pipe. It was $5.50. I paid for it with a $10 bill. There were no credit cards back then. I went back to my room, and I sat there for about two or three days looking at this pipe and saying to myself, why are you doing this? You don't even like to smoke. So I took the pipe back down to the mid-store and was going to trade it back in for my $10 bill, right? I don't remember all the specifics. I should, but I don't. But for some reason, while I was down there, I decided I'm going to keep it. So I go back to my room. Two days later, I get called down to the commandant's office. And he says to me, you have been accused of stealing a pipe from the midshipman store. Because there were no receipts, because we didn't do business then like we do now, I had no way of proving that, yes, I had been in the midshipman store with the pipe in my hand. Yes, I had walked out without paying for it that day, but I had paid for it three days before. I was, I mean, my stomach was a wreck. My brother was in the class of 65. And he came to me and he said, Pete, I love you. If you stole that pipe, you have got to stand up and admit it. And if you did not steal that pipe, then you need to stand your ground and I'm with you. I really do not know how this thing might have turned out except for what happened the day after. One of my classmates was a guy named John Griffin. He was our third class company commander. And John saw that I was upset and said to me, what's the problem? And I told John that I'd been accused of stealing a pipe. And he said, you mean the pipe that I saw you with? And he mentioned the day before the day that I supposedly stole it. And I said, John, are you sure that you saw me with that? And he said, I'm positive because we were doing this. We were studying for this, this test. Da, 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 da. John went and saw the company officer, told them what he had seen. I was exonerated. But there was about a month of my life where I really thought that I was going to be shown the door because I had no way to prove myself. Pace then carried the lessons from that month through to the rest of his career. As a result of that, quite honestly, I've been more lenient on more people than I should have been. 
Every time some PFC stood in front of me and swore up and down it, he didn't do whatever it was he didn't do, I tended to believe him. I'm not sorry I did. Because when you're a leader, you can always show some leniency. If they deserve to be shown the leniency, you'll feel great about having been the leader who gave it to them. And if they don't deserve to be shown the leniency, they'll show themselves again, and you can kill them then. And great advice. After graduating from the academy, Pace quickly found himself leading a platoon of Marines in Vietnam in the middle of the Tet Offensive. And there, something else happened that also shaped his career and his life. We were on patrol. And an incredible young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro from Bethpage, New York, 19 years old, born in Italy, naturalized citizen of the U.S., was shot by a sniper right in the chest. I was holding Guido when he died, and I was absolutely enraged. Now, I had heard all the stories about people supposedly cutting off ears and doing things in combat that, you know, weren't right. And I knew, I knew I would never allow myself or any of my Marines to ever do anything immoral or unethical in combat. When Guido died, I was enraged. I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper round was fired. It takes a little while between the time you call for fire and you get it. During that time, my platoon sergeant, who was an E-5 sergeant, but he was on his second tour in Vietnam, didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that what I was doing was wrong. I mean, it just confirmed what I already knew in my heart of hearts. I called off the artillery strike before it was fired. We did what we should have done in the first place, which was to sweep through the village on foot. Go figure, we found nothing but women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself if we had done what I almost did. The point is, the time to set your moral compass is not when your best buddy gets shot, is not when your women get shot down. You will be morally challenged when you are least emotionally prepared to deal with it. Every day since, I have thought about who I am. I got my platoon together that day and apologized to them for almost doing what I almost did. And then every day since then, I have just thought through what's going to happen today that might be a moral challenge, an ethical challenge. 99.9% of the time, the things I could think of never happened. But it got me into a routine of thinking about who I am so that when things that I hadn't thought about happened, I was able to take the two to three seconds, that's all it takes, the two to three seconds to think about, is this who I am, before executing? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this remarkable speech, General Peter Pace, 
sharing stories from his life. I mean, these are confessionals of a sort. I mean, he was a hair trigger away from killing a whole lot of innocent people because he was just ticked off. And so setting your moral compass, we can all hear words of wisdom like that. And by the way, we all need a sergeant like that who just stares at us. And by the way, that sergeant was going up against a higher rank. He wasn't saying anything, but he was through his silence and through his stare. And we all have that opportunity with our bosses, with people we know and care about. More on leadership. General Peter Pace's stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to General Peter Pace's talk at Annapolis with 19-year-olds. And not many 19-year-olds are hearing this message, let alone having everything that's happening around them reinforcing this message. And where we left off, Peter Pace had just told a remarkable story about, well, a couple of stories actually, about events that changed his life. And... Of course, not all moral courage is about restraint. Sometimes it's about making the decision that's right for your subordinates, but possibly is hazardous to your career. Here's Pace telling a story from the 1980s when he was commanding about a 1,000 Marines. When I was Lieutenant Colonel Battalion Commander, my battalion was was afloat aboard ship. We were off the Philippines, and we got word that the U.S. Embassy wanted my Marines to come ashore and be part of a parade for President Marcos. The island on which they were going to have the parade was a known island of violence, a lot of insurgents. I said, okay, we can do this, but we're coming in with ammunition because I'm not going to have my mortars, my machine guns, my rifles, and most importantly, my Marines challenged while they're in this parade by insurgents. The word came back. They said, oh, no, you can't do that. You cannot march past President Marcos with ammunition. And my answer back was, okay, we're not going to march past President Marcos. This became a very, very sensitive subject. Messages going back and forth. And I refused put my Marines ashore. We went back to Okinawa from whence we'd come aboard ship. And when I got off ship, I got word that the uh, division commander wanted to see me right away. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, Lieutenant Colonel, 16 years of service, four to go to retirement. Uh, Now what? What am I going to do next, right? (laughs) I was okay with my decision, but I didn't know whether or not the division commander was. So I walked in and report to him, Major General Glasgow. I walk in, I report, and sir, Lieutenant Colonel Pace reporting is ordered. He looks at me and says, Pete, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to be Pete, you're fired, or what it was going to be, okay? But it reinforced for me, again, I didn't do that lightly. 
I didn't do it glibly. I thought about it a lot, real hard. I mean, there's other times when I thought about things really hard and done it wrong. You owe yourself as a leader to think about things the best you can and get to the best clarity you can and then make your decision and live with it and be comfortable in your own skin. Being comfortable in your own skin, that's a tough one when you're making tough decisions like these with so many people's lives on the line. And of course, the higher up in rank one goes, the more complicated and consequential these decisions become. Pace then told the midshipman a story from when he was a one-star brigadier general in the early 1990s. I get a call from the Commandant of the Marine Corps saying, hey, uh, 1st Marine Division is going to go to Somalia. They don't have an assistant division commander. General Wilhelm is division commander. wants you as his deputy. Can you go? So I went, and we go ashore. The port of Mogadishu is really very small. We had three pre-positioned ships with the equipment and one small port that could take one ship at a time. So the ships are coming in and out and they're putting stuff on the, uh, on the uh, deck and, putting, and taking what they need. And because the port itself was so small, you couldn't leave stuff out. You had to put it all back. Whatever you didn't use, you put back on the ship. It went back out. The next ship came in. We're about to go attack a warlord's compound. He has T-55 tanks. Now, if T-55 tanks are significant if you're wearing nothing but your uniform, but kind of pieces of trash if you happen to have your nice M1A1 tank. And you can stand off and take shots with your M1A1 all day long and kill T-55s before they get anywhere near where they can shoot. So we're feeling pretty good about this. General Wilhelm's sitting in one chair, and General Pace is sitting in another chair, and we're being briefed, and all of a sudden, the captain, tank, company commander says, Excuse me? The main gun, tank ammo, got sent back out to sea. This is the night before an attack. So I'm sitting there, and I always I have kind of a strange sense of humor anyway. And, I mean, it was dead silence, and you could just see General Wilhelm. His jaws were getting... I mean, you could tell he was about to go eat something. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I kind of smirked, and I said, we should do this without ammo. Put yourself in the warlord's position. Do you think that he thinks that we're stupid enough not to have ammo? <laughs> Wilhelm, who was, went from being totally pissed to being hysterical, says, you're right, but now that we've had our yucks, we're saying, okay, fair enough, this is going to work, but just in case he doesn't believe that we actually have ammo, you know, we need to make sure we've got Cobra gunships and all that stuff stacked up. So the ethical part of this was making sure we, in fact, protected PFC Pace, but the decision part of it was, we need to do this, and we can do this, and nobody would think we're that stupid. So we were that stupid, and we got away with it. Okay. <laughs> Having shared some personal stories from throughout his four decades in uniform, General Pace then gave these midshipmen some advice for their careers. Grow where you are planted. You're going to get a chance two plus years from now, 
to put in your request for what you want to do next. Some of you are not going to get your first choice. The Marines and the sailors who are looking to you don't care whether it's your first choice or your 12th choice. They need you and they deserve from you that you be the best leader you can possibly be for them. I promise you, if you will ask for and fight for what you want in an assignment and then go do whatever you're told to do like it was your first choice, you will always get another great job as a follow-on job. Why? Because there are more great jobs than there are great people. You can drive yourself nuts worrying about what somebody two or three levels above you is doing that's not right. And there's not a darn thing you can do about that. So my recommendation to you is stay in your lane. And an officer's lane, in my opinion, is what he or she is responsible to do and an understanding of what your boss and their boss are doing and an understanding of what your first subordinate and their first subordinate are doing. If you will focus on that bandwidth and operate as best you can every day in an ethical, moral way with integrity, your, in the case of Marines, your 40 Marine platoon will very quickly become a 200-man company, will very quickly become a 1,000-man battalion because you're focused on the things that you are responsible for and over which you have some ability to have impact. And what great advice that applies to everything in life. Grow where you are planted, the general was telling these 19-year-olds. And there are more great jobs than great people. So true. Don't be in a rush. That was another one I loved. A great coach of mine said, don't be the boy in the rush. Stop rushing. And that's very little difference in that than grow where you are planted. Slow down, make the best of your situation, and learn right here. And by the way, one last story that would probably embarrass General Pace a bit. He's certainly not the sort to push this story himself. After his retirement ceremony at Fort Myer in Virginia on October 1st, 2007, General Pace went to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. By the way, we did too. We sent our Hillsdale students there. And you can go to our website. It was a special Memorial Day celebration. And they talked to folks in front of that memorial, one of the most beautiful memorials in all of Washington, D.C. But Pace went to that memorial, the striking black wall engraved with the names of 58,307 Americans, who paid the ultimate price in Vietnam. And onto each three-by-five piece of paper, he pinned his four stars, metal representations of his rank, his career, and his code of honor. And again, each of these three-by-fives was for men who died in his platoon in Vietnam. On those cards, he wrote, These are yours, not mine, exclamation point, With love and respect, your platoon leader, Pete Pace. And there you have it, Peter Pace's story, 
to the third-class midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. In a way, their stories, too, all the fallen men's stories in Vietnam. This is Our American Stories. Stories. 